Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. A um, couple things before I, I share from the Word. Um, first is, we're running a little late today because we started a little late, and I just want to remind everyone, our church starts at 10, so please do your very best to be gathered here together so we can start right on time. Um, just want to give you a quick reminder about that. And also, um, especially this is for those who might be kind of new to our church. You may be wondering, those booths back there, as you see this need for, for new people to serve and help out, does that apply at all to you? And the answer is it absolutely does. One of the things about our church is there are no barriers to entry. One of the greatest ways you can get plugged in, meet people, figure out if this is a place for you, is to get involved. A lot of times you feel like you've got to figure it out all first and then jump in, but there's no obligation. We don't sink our hooks into you. You come and serve, work next to people, and see if this is the place you want to call home. And so I want to encourage you that this is for you as much as for anybody else. Um, the only team that has any kind of barrier to entry at all will be the Seeds Children's Ministry. And for obvious reasons, we do have a background check that we do. So that's the only little speed bump there. But every other team, if you're willing to serve, you have an open heart, we'd love to have you. Well, this morning, I'm going to bring to a close a series we've been walking through for a while now. This is the last message in the series on the book of James. And the title of the message is Bringing the Wanderer Back. Bringing the Wanderer Back. And it comes from James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Here is what the text says. Turn this this way. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I think maybe one of the most frightening things that could happen to a parent is that you're in a crowded place, people everywhere, and you look away for just a moment, and when you turn around, your child has wandered off. Just out of curiosity, has that happened to any parent here? Yeah, it's happened to us too. It's probably one of the most terrifying things that could happen to you as a parent. And at first... What you experience is annoyance. Man, I told him to stay right by me. And you look around, little Johnny, come on. And usually the kid comes running, oh, sorry, well, I just saw some Pokemons. And, you know, that happens. But what happens when they don't respond to the call of your voice? And you start frantically looking around. And all of a sudden, annoyance gives way to terror and panic is you realize that you can't find your kid. They haven't just wandered off, they're lost. And at that point, it doesn't really matter how they got lost. It doesn't matter what happened. The only thing that matters at that point, the only thing that matters in the whole universe for you is finding that kid and bringing him back home safely. That's all that matters. And I think it's very important that we understand in the church that that's exactly the way God feels about every person who lives far away from him. 
Jesus once told a powerful story. And he's trying to help us understand how God feels about people who are lost to him. And he says in the story, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And it's important for us to know in the church, which sometimes, unfortunately, can be one of the most self-righteous and judgmental places in our society, that this is the heart which God feels he has for every person who is lost to him. It's the desperate heart of a father who can't find his child, and really nothing else matters until that child is brought home. That is the desperate heart of the father, which he wants us to have when we think about people who are far away from him. And this text didn't lend itself very well to three points in a poem at the end. There isn't a clear structure but I want to just walk with you through this, this narrative, this text, because James is giving us, the church, a very important invitation. And the first thing we see here is he says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. What he means by, he chooses his words carefully. He doesn't say wanders away from the church. He doesn't say wanders away from proper doctrine. What he says is he wanders away from the truth. And with James's absolute emphasis on connecting what we believe to what we do, there's no way to believe that he doesn't understand this to be a departure from a certain way of life. Not just a secret inner change in what we believe, but a visible outer change in how we live because somewhere inside we've changed our minds about something important. It's changed our lives outside in the way that we speak and act and appear and all of that. In other words, the wandering from the truth for James is always visible to us. We're not guessing at what people are doing. We're observing their actual choices and their behavior. And we're saying something is different about you. And when we talk about the word wander, we're presuming that there is a proper path we all are on. And you wander off of a path. You know, it's not some open-ended exploration. It is error. It is departure from the place where we're supposed to be. And what he says is, in the church from time to time, it will inevitably be the case that people will wander from the truth. That you're going to see a visible change in the way they live, in the values they're holding, and in the choices they're making because of it. And let me ask you a question. When you see somebody who leaves the tribe, so to speak. I mean, let's say we're a bunch of totally, like, off-the-charts, tree-hugging, you know, like, you know, those eco-terrorist-type green people who are always worried about the environment. Let's say we are all those people, and I, I'm probably getting there. And what if among us, that's the covenant, is we take care of the planet, and all of a sudden, one from among us is taking an empty plastic bottle and just throwing it in the trash. And you're like, well, hold a minute. What's that all about? That's not the way we do things. You know that. And the person doesn't even seem bothered by what they're doing. They're just tossing away this recyclable material. 
not a care in the world, and you see something's different about you. What happened to you? Now, what's your first reaction? If, if you come from the left side of the political spectrum, and one of your friends starts saying, you know, actually, I've been listening to WLS, and that Rush Limbaugh is starting to make some sense to me. He's not that bad. How do you feel about it? What you talking about, Willis? How do you feel when somebody who is in the church with you, and you all agree, this is the way we're going to do things, this is the way we're going to live, and suddenly they're doing something different. And I'm not just talking about, oh, they went and, and did something a little. I'm saying, like, something significant, it's clear something has changed inside. How do you feel about that observation? If we're really honest about it, I think for most of us, the first initial gut-level reaction is annoyance. And I, I think the negative reaction we have can range anywhere from minor annoyance to just an outright sense of betrayal. You know, maybe we roll our eyes. Maybe we just kind of yell, what the heck are you thinking? What are you doing? This isn't who we are. This is what we do. And I know that that's the reaction I often have when I see somebody just willfully leaving the reservation. You know what I mean? And I think we have to check ourselves when we have that initial reaction because I, although God really does not like sin, he has a profound and unshakable love and concern for people. He has a care for people that is inflamed in the midst of, of the rebellion. It's not like his love for them is doused when they leave him. It is inflamed when they leave him. His concern even grows, which is why he says, the 99 that are doing well, good, stay home. I'm going after your brother. He's lost to me, and right now that's all that matters. And we have to understand that that's the father heart of God. Now keep in mind, the other thing he says is, hey, if anyone among you Meaning, look, we might look down our noses at somebody who has kind of gone off the rails. But what James is reminding us is that anyone from among us can get lost, can wander off. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what your track record has been. Seduction, distraction, pain, all kinds of things cause us to wander from the truth. Let me just pause and give you a public service announcement, uh, a little plug, because next week is Pastor's Appreciation Month. I, I don't want a, like a lot of gifts and all that. Here's what I want to say about that. Can you just acknowledge as well that it's really important to us as pastors that you think of us as part of this church, meaning we need to be in a church that ministers to us as well. And, and what I'm really trying to say is keep an eye on our families, and make sure that you're thinking your ministry to us is as important as our ministry to you. That even those who hold the title of pastor and pastor's wife and pastor's kids can wander from the truth because all kinds of things cause people to wander from the truth that God loves us, that God is powerful, that he is good, that life is worthy, worth it. We can depart from the truth because of pain, because of enticement, because of anger or bitterness or frustration, so many things cause people to wander. There isn't anyone in this room exempt from the vulnerability to straying from God the Father. There isn't a one of us here 
who doesn't have something. And early in the letter that he wrote, James reminded us that really temptation isn't just something that lives outside. is isn't just somebody hiking up their short skirt going, come here, sailor. You know, it's not, it's not just an external thing. But he says the way temptation works is it comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. In other words, the reason none of us is exempt from the possibility of wandering away is that that darkness is in each one of us. I found that I have grown as a Christian since I came to Christ in 1984, but I've never fully expunged that dark desire that lives in my heart. Have you? I'm trying to be vulnerable here. I got some dirt in me. Not just some dirt. I got some dirty in me. Okay, there's a difference. Dirt is just stuff I accumulated. Dirty is that, ew, gross. You would not like me if you could see what I'm thinking right now. I got that in me. And I'm the one preaching every Sunday, right? So uh, what do you got in you? The truth is that every one of us has little places in our hearts that can be hooked into. And it is because we want these things that it's possible for us to be seduced and dragged away. Let me illustrate how this works, that there is something we want, and when we want it badly enough, sometimes the way wandering begins is we change what we think is the truth. We change our beliefs so that we can live with our new choices. I want to give you an illustration, and again, I I need to emphasize when I give illustrations like what I'm about to give, it's not so we can pile on and judge somebody altogether. It's because I think that a very public story can serve as a good reminder to us of how we echo these things in our own lives. Anybody know who this is? You got to be a little older to recognize her, I think. That's Rene Russo. Back in 1999, She was a 40-year-old model turned actress. And at the time when many of the women her age in Hollywood were starting to play the roles of mother and even grandmother, um, she was being invited to play roles as the leading lady. And that was already for her a a bit of a thing because she realized how flattering that was. Rene Russo has been a committed Christian since her teens. In an interview she gave, she said, and this this is really the real deal, it's not just a philosophy for me. God walks with me. From the start of her modeling career, she has always tithed 10% to her church. She lives steeped in the modeling and Hollywood show business culture, but she and her husband waited until marriage to have sex. I am not pointing her out as somebody who's one of those fake sort of cultural Christians. She is the real deal. She really loves the Lord. She's committed to her faith. And that's why I think this serves as a powerful illustration is that I'm not pointing at somebody who is very different from everyone in this room, but someone who's very much like us. And when she was offered the leading role next to Pierce Brosnan in the film The Thomas Crown Affair, the director, John McTiernan, was adamant about one thing. He said the leading character that you're going to play, Catherine, is a woman who wears her sexuality on her sleeve. She leads with her sex appeal. That's her power over the way that things turn out. And I want you to play that to the hilt. And that would include a topless scene in this movie. And as a born-again Christian, she wrestled a lot with this. She wasn't comfortable with this idea. And so she said in an interview on both People magazine and Los Angeles magazine, 
I prayed about it. And I thought about it. And after a long period of deliberation, here's the conclusion that she reached. I don't know where in the Bible it says, don't be nude in a motion picture. In some of the most beautiful paintings in the Vatican, people are in the nude. Now, she, she, in fairness, had a lot of things going on inside. One was that she was a model and an actress who made her living by being visibly beautiful. And she was entering the twilight years of that beauty as it was starting to fade. And someone was telling her she still had it. That's powerful stuff. She was being offered $5 million to play this role. It's powerful stuff. A-list actors don't stay on the A-list by getting their directors mad at them and being difficult to work with. That's powerful stuff. And a true actor is deeply committed to the direction that she's under because that's how a movie gets made. It's the vision of the director. A movie is only as good as the director's ability to get the work the, the talent to do what he's trying to portray on film. And she was a deeply committed actress. So she's got a lot of these professional and personal issues raging inside, and she prayed about it and thought about it, and yet at the end of the day, the conclusion she reached is one I don't think is really very honoring to God. It's not great logic. I don't see where in the Bible it says, don't be nude in a motion picture. I don't know how that verse could have gotten in there in the age before motion pictures. But I think what she ended up deciding was made possible because there was something she needed to work itself out. And she had to change the way she believed in a subtle but significant way so that she could live with her new choice. Now, obviously, I'm not pointing her out because I want all of us now to stomp on her and judge her publicly. It's because that story that played out very publicly, she interviewed after this movie, divulged all of this. I'm not reading her mind. I'm reading her press. Like, this is what she actually said in interviews. And I'm illustrating this because this is happening for so many people in our own small scale again and again. That there are powerful forces at work in us. Things we deeply want And at times we know we can't have them unless the rules are different. And when the heart wants something badly enough, it starts to change the rules. And that's the way wandering so often begins in the church today. When you see somebody reach a decision like that, I mean, when you heard me say that line for the first time, uh, I don't see where in the Bible it says, don't be nude in a motion picture. What was your first impulse? Was it like, oh, God. I wish there was a good emoticon for eye rolling, right? Is there, I don't know. Is that what you felt at first? Like, oh boy, here we go. What I felt was, oh my gosh, I think I do that. There's a great historical illustration of how we should be responding to stories like this. There's a man named John Bradford who ran afoul of Queen Mary I of England, who was also known as Mary Tudor or Bloody Mary. Mary is fighting a, a vicious campaign to restore Roman Catholicism to England. And John Bradford was a faithful reformer, somebody trying to bring a Protestant faith to England. She made up some trumped-up charges, threw him into the Tower of London, and condemned him to death. He was eventually burned at the stake in 1555. 
But while he was imprisoned, condemned, waiting for his execution, his jailers and fellow inmates remarked about what kind of man he was. And, you know, you could hear it in the Tower of London. You look out the the window of your cell, you can see the condemned men going to the gallows and being hanged or burned. It was by design that you could see it so you knew what was awaiting you. And John Bradford, every time he saw a condemned man going to his death, would say out loud, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. It's widely attributed to him that saying that we often say, there but but for the grace of God go I. And here's what he famously said, by the sight of others' sins, men may learn to bewail their own sinfulness. It is so easy when somebody's succumbing to something I'm not struggling with to look down our noses in judgment at them. I have never wrestled with substance abuse temptations. I've never once, and I've been offered many times, I've never once felt a draw to illegal drugs. And so when I see people wrestling with that addiction, it's easy for me to go, I don't get why this is so hard for you. But I have wrestled with many, many other things that friends of mine haven't wrestled with. I've wrestled in my life with terrible materialism, and I've had friends who don't think once about money. And I just look at them and go, how do you do that? How do you care so little about money when I care so much about it? When you're not the one struggling, it's so easy to look down your nose and go, what is your problem exactly? But I think John Bradford's words are so true that when we see another person wandering, our first instinct has to be, except for the grace of God, that could be me. There's got to be a humility before we get involved in anyone else's life. Now, that kind of humility is a good thing. Would you agree? Is anybody with me? Say something. Just Yeah, uh uh-huh. All right. Yeah, that's a good thing, that kind of humility. But here's the thing. In our culture today, I think that's sort of, yeah, but for the grace of God, I could be that guy too. I think that kind of humility is out there, but in a distorted way. And here's what I mean. It's also possible for humility to be so distorted that I start thinking, yeah, actually, who the heck am I to say anything to anyone? And we're worried about the counter challenge. Hey, you know, um, what you're doing is not appropriate. Oh, yeah? Well, you're not exactly perfect either, are you? And we're, the truth is we're like, yeah, you're, actually, you're absolutely right. And there is this reverse humility, this distorted hum- humility that says, nobody has a right to say anything to anybody because none of us is perfect. And so somewhere between those two extremes is a place where we say, I know that if it were not for the grace of God, that could be me falling to the thing that I am weakest against. And yet, despite the fact that I am also imperfect and have darkness in me, I must say and do something because that's my brother or my sister. And I see where they're headed. Just yesterday, I did a a campus visit at Northwestern with my son, Noah. And we did one to wash you some time ago. And I noticed there's the same walk for tour guides. They had to walk backwards. It's the exact same gate. I was watching like, why is that so familiar? Because the girl watched you walk the same way. And what she, this girl, though, at Northwestern, she was smart. I, maybe Northwestern is a better school because this girl was smart enough to say, hey, I'm going to be walking backwards the whole time, 
and I don't have eyes in the back of my head. If you see that I'm about to walk into traffic or hit a pole, would you please say something? And right away, I could tell one of the dads, he was like, I'm on it. And he was right in the front. And he's watching her. And he like, he's just, mm-hmm, oh, oh. and he saved her life a couple times. He, he kind of said, whoa, 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 whoa. She's, ooh, that could have been really bad. And I think that's a lot of what we're saying is when you see someone about to walk into a pole, you don't just go, whoa. You, know, you don't just wait for the crash. Say something. Because what's about to happen to them, you wouldn't wish on somebody. It's not about shoving my superiority down anyone's throat. I don't know why it's always portrayed that way. Have you ever once felt a desire to just shove something down? Wait, that's not who we are. That's like saying to somebody while they're getting CPR, stop shoving your oxygen down my lungs. Yeah, but then you'll die. (laughs) I'm not trying to invade your space. I'm trying to give you air. You need it or you're going to get blue and dead. Do you see what we're getting at is there's this fine tension when we say, I know I don't have the right by myself to say anything, but I can't just watch. I can't not get involved because you're in my family and I know that something's about to happen and I can't just watch you and laugh in the aftermath at the mess you've made. Look at this passage from Ezekiel. Thousands of years ago, the prophet Ezekiel said this. And this is, this is the voice of God speaking through Ezekiel. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life. That wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sins, but you will have saved yourself. Now, I share these words as coming from before Jesus Christ and the gospel and the new covenant. So take them with a grain of salt. The principle here is this. When God says to someone, this is how it works. This is what's going to happen. I'm warning you. And we don't echo that warning in love. Our disregard for the welfare of our brother and sister heaps guilt and accountability upon us. There's no room in the church for a passive spectatorship of the ruin of another person's life. There's no room in the Christian church for the attitude, hey, I'm just not going to get involved. That's not my problem. That's not my thing. As if to increase the sense of urgency, James says in verse 20, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, and really, Let's not get caught up in this word sinner as and exactly how to understand that label. Just understand it's speaking of the person who has wandered from the truth. It says, if you bring that person back, you will save their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's so much debate about how to parse this all out. Here's why I've landed on it. I think James is pointing out to us the stakes, the high stakes when a person wanders from the truth. And one of the possible consequences is this, that they could lose their soul. Now, the Bible teaches us, Jesus himself teaches in John 10, verses 28 to 29, that once a person is saved, they cannot lose that salvation. Once truly saved, you belong to Jesus, and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. 
But I believe it's possible to live for years in the church, actively part of the social fabric, actively part of the religious observance and culture, actively serving in this or that team, and still not actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe throughout the world, the churches all over this planet are filled with people who are culturally and socially and actively involved in church life, but don't have a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so they live all the time with a tension that there is this framework and cultural and, and, and theological milieu in which they live, but inside their hearts, they've never felt fully alive, desperately hungry for God. They just sort of really like the people, like the lifestyle, preferred over what's available outside. And, and yet they see people shedding tears during worship service. And they think to themselves, not once in 20 years have I ever been tempted to cry in a worship service. I don't understand why that person's so agitated or excited, moved. And I feel none of that ever. I feel a little bad when I do bad things. I feel a little good when I do good things. But I don't feel this language of the Bible, this coming alive, being made new, has ever really described the way I feel about my faith. And I believe at some point in a person's life, they get bold and courageous and honest and say, you know what, I'm kind of done faking myself out and faking everything for all of you. I want what I want, and I'm just going to go this way. And often that spiritual wandering is not a Christian backsliding, but it is somebody who's been in the church without being in the kingdom now finally showing the truth of their spiritual state. And the reason James is saying it's so important to pursue them is not to judge them or say, aha, see you faker. It is not to do that. It's to say, look, part of the reason you're wandering is because a very critical piece of the puzzle was never put in the place in your life that you walked with us by these rules and by these cultures, but that you were never made alive out of spiritual death. You never hungered for Jesus, became quickened in your spirit, regenerated in your soul. Something is missing, and this wandering you're on is the proof that Jesus is inviting you into more than a way of life. He's inviting you into a life-changing, life-giving relationship with him where you place your full trust in him and you come alive inside. And so the reason that's so important to pursue the wanderer is because in some cases, exactly that is happening. That a person who was destined for eternal death is finally realizing the truth of their spiritual state and that person needs to be won back to the Lord they think they knew, but have never had the joy of truly knowing. But he also says that love covers a multitude of sins. This pursuing and restoring of a wanderer covers over a multitude of sins. I think sometimes the case is this, that a Christian is seduced by the allure and beauty and attractiveness of the world out there. Can I just see a show of hands on this? Have any of you ever been enticed by stuff outside the church? <laughs> Everybody better raise their hands. That world out there is beautiful. There's some stuff out there that just like has nothing to do with religion or Jesus, but I just think about it a lot. Have you ever just spent the whole day thinking about golf? <laughs> no, right? 
<laughs> Maybe. Have you ever just thought about what car you'd buy if you had $100,000 to blow? Have you ever spent a whole day on the web looking at mansions of celebrities? Why? Just because that stuff out there is beautiful. And sometimes we're led away and we harden our hearts. And in that hardened state, what we say for whatever reason is, I'm not sorry about this at all. I want that. And I'm going to stay right here. And if no one pursues that person, they may end up going forever, not repenting of that, not being covered. Because covering is the way that God deals with our sin. He doesn't erase it. You can't erase the thing that actually happened. When I sin, it stands as a historical reality for all time. It exists in the universe. But what God does is he chooses to cover it and not look at it again. And that only happens if I own up to it and I ask for that covering. And in a hardened state, as a wanderer, I won't ask for that. As I bring the plane in for a landing, let me just give you a couple practical pointers if you're going to engage in this ministry James is inviting us into. To chase after a wandering Christian, a person who's wandered from the fold, is not casual work. How many of you are sitting around thinking, I'm really bored, I need some extra uninvited drama in my life. I just don't have enough drama of my own. Anybody just bored silly? I'm looking for partners in ministry. Your life is so stable, so free of drama, you just love it, you, you want more. None of us. We got enough junk in our own life. I really, half the time, my hesitation is, my God, I don't need any more drama on top of my own junk. Please handle your own junk. But if you need to get into it, here's a couple things you got to think about. One is, remember, your, your job is to pull in, don't push away. Pull in. Don't push. Remember what Paul says in Romans 2, 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That doesn't mean we sugarcoat the challenge we give people. But it also means we don't crush them or shut the door in their face. People who are wandering know they've left the reservation. What they really need to know is that the Father heart of God is waiting for them at home and the front door is open. That any time you want, you can come home from this. That is always the invitation of the Father heart of God. It is His promise of kindness that draws the wanderer back, not the promise of judgment and crushing condemnation. Didn't Jesus teach us that his father did not send him to us to condemn us, but to save us. If God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, he is not sending us to condemn it either. Amen? Don't take that to mean we sugarcoat what we're saying. We tell them this is the real consequence, this is what I see, but always in the spirit that I'm trying to pull them back home, not push them out. Here's another thing. Let love be your motive and your method. I couldn't think of a more compelling way to say that, so there it is, just bald-faced. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he says this, for Christ's love compels us. In other words, the engine that drives every act of outreach and evangelism and mercy and care is the love of Jesus Christ for people. It is not a desire to expand our team, to grow our church, to win a debate. The motive in all ministry is the love of Jesus Christ. And then he says, because of that compelling love, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Go home. Where you are is not where you live. Go home to God. Here's what I'm trying to say here. Before you say anything, know why you want to say anything at all. If it's just self-righteous indignation or annoyance or judgment, say nothing whatsoever. Until you get to the place where it's Christ's love compelling you, don't even yell at your own children. We earn the right to teach and correct our children only when the love of Christ is compelling us. Don't hide behind parental duty and crush the spirit of your child in self-righteous indignation and prideful anger, for it never saved a single person. If love is what's driving God, shouldn't that be what drives us? And I won't belabor this, but Paul gives us an amazing definition of what love looks like. So in the process of pursuing the wanderer, always compare it to this template. Do these words reflect the way I'm trying to pursue you when you're wandering? The first word there is so telling. Because the first place I want to give up is, look, I'm trying to tell you the truth. You're being such a jerk. You're so difficult. You're being so evasive and argumentative. Forget it. You really want to to eat with the pigs? Enjoy. (laughs) Go ahead. I'm done, man. And that's a very 2014 phrase, isn't it? I can't even. I'm done. You, me, finished. I can't deal with you anymore. And I think what Paul is saying is that's not what love does. It doesn't go, you know what? That was it. I'm so sick of your story. I'm finished. But this is, oh, man, this is going to take a while. I guess I'll still be here tomorrow. So you get the idea. If we're going to reach after people who are wandering, Make sure that these words describe the way you're doing it as well as the reason why you're doing it. And let me give you one last quick one. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Okay? Look at Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. I always think about the time when I lived in Korea. Me and my brother, we're still little kids, and we'd have these plastic swords. I think I've told this story before. Somehow, inevitably, one of them would get stuck on the roof of our little old-style Korean house. And you could see half the sword hanging on the edge of the roof. And so we would always get the bright idea, hey, I got it. I'm going to throw my sword up there and try to get yours down. And before long, there's two swords stuck on the roof. And then my cousin would come on. He's like, you dummies, let me show you how it's done. And now there's three swords stuck on the roof. And that memory stands as a reminder to me that it is so easy to be stuck in the same predicament of the person you're trying to help. 
Because look, it requires a little humility. If it was enough to sink them, what's to say it's not enough to sink you? Unless you're arrogant enough to think they're just weak and I'm strong, as if the reason you're the one helping is because you are somehow inherently better than that person. Oh, oh, brother, sister, wake up. By the grace of God, you're in a better place, but you're not better. Neither am I. And if there isn't a humility in the way we approach the stuckness of other people, we'll never be able to help them out. I may have no struggle with anorexia whatsoever, but if I'm talking to a a kid who's struggling with that, I've got to have a humility about what it's like to be stuck in the grips of something so powerful. And I've got to check my own heart because I have darkness in me too. And I don't want to be that third sword stuck on that roof as a testament to pride and bad ideas. I hope you will answer the call of James. And is it encouraging that even though he acknowledges our elders in the church, he doesn't address them here. He says, if any one of you brings the wanderer home, meaning this is a ministry for all of us. And that's meaningful to me because as a pastor, I'm saying we need you to help with this. There are going to be people in your life you love who will wander from the truth. They will make up their own version of a truth and live by it. And God is inviting you to pursue them and bring them home. Will you do it? Will you do it and not give up that person so easily? Today in the church, we watch the front door very carefully. We count how many new visitors and members are joining. But I wonder if while we're obsessed with the front door, anybody's watching the back door. And all those people who quietly slip out, never to be seen again. And some people leave because they moved to another city, but some people leave because they just wandered from God quietly, with no fanfare. They just lost it, and nobody noticed. Will you join with the Father Heart of God in keeping an eye on the back door? And when there's a face you haven't seen in a while, will you pursue that person? Say, what's going on with you? Where have you been? Are you doing all right? I think that's ultimately what it means for us to be a part of a kingdom of priests. Let's pray. I want to just give two prayer invitations and invite us to pray about either one at the same time, whichever one applies more to you. If in the course of hearing these words, you've begun to understand that you might be the one wandering or close to the point of wandering, I'm going to give you this challenge. If someone has the courage and love for you to come up and say something, whether they're right or not, would you listen to them? Would you at least give them a fair hearing? Because they're trying to minister to you in the love of Jesus Christ. And that person might be the difference between you and walking away from your Savior. And if you've heard these words and you know that somebody near you has just broken your heart as they've wandered from the truth, would you commit your heart in the power of Christ?
to screw up your courage and say, I will pursue them. I won't give them up without a fight. Because God loves that person. He'd leave the 99 to chase them down. And I will do that too. Why don't we just go to God in prayer for a minute and then we'll invite the praise team to lead us in a closing song. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.